It's Wednesday, November 8th, 2023. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. On election night, Democrats and Democratic issues did well, as the polls predicted. Andy Brashear, re-elected governor of Kentucky, running as a fiscally prudent moderate who would protect abortion rights. In Virginia, the Democrats took the state houses, no doubt motivated by the desire to protect abortion rights. Same in Ohio, where issue one enshrined a right to abortion into the Constitution, one pretty handily. It seemed fairly obvious to me that it would. Abortion rights are popular almost everywhere, and the worst encapsulated in the New York Times coverage didn't make too much sense to me. Headline, why the abortion ballot question in Ohio is confusing voters. Ballot questions have been a winning strategy for abortion rights, even in red states, but complicated ballot language and misinformation have some abortion rights supporters worried. Mm -hmm. Among the complications was that this issue won, enshrined abortion rights, but there was an old initiative that was also called Issue 1, and that Issue 1 did the opposite. But voters, not being total idiots, figured it out. Voters also figured out that they like the DA that they've had for years in Pittsburgh. It was an odd race in that a progressive, Matt Dugan, beat the incumbent in the Democratic primary, so Stephen Zappala ran on the Republican line. Pittsburgh's KDKA had this analysis. The district attorney race, yeah. such a, a bizarre situation with Stephen yeah. Zappala running yeah. as on the Republican side. Uh, your paper has reported about this billionaire, George Soros, right. $1.8 million to bat back Matt Dugan, yeah. and he ends up losing. Yeah. What do you think that says? I think it says voters are not in a revolutionary mood. They knew and liked Zapala, even if he was running as a Republican, because in the very low turnout primary, he was beaten by Dugan. In the U.S., here in this country, voters have had, for 50 years, have had abortion rights, and they want to keep having them. They always wanted Zapala as their DA, not a progressive prosecutor, a guy who was painted that way. So they voted as such. In places where it seemed like Republicans had an entrenched advantage that would be almost impossible to overcome, it wasn't overcome, like the Mississippi governor's race. Why? Well, A huge Republican advantage means that the people, the voters, are generally Republican and conservative, and they continue to be so. Here was a race put on my radar by Dave Weigel, the Matsu School District in Alaska. The school board is considering banning 56 books, some of the normal books that always get banned, and even some Kurt Vonnegut. So there was a dramatic walkout by high school students. Maybe a new day had dawned in the Matsu School District. New candidates Diane Scheib and Sidney Zias were challenging the old guard, as Alaska Public Radio reported. For Scheib and Zias, pulling votes away from conservative candidates can be challenging in an area that voted for former Republican President Donald Trump at a 71 percent clip in 2020. But they're both hoping that voters are willing to send a message to the school board with their ballots. They were not. This got a little over 30% of the vote, Scheib 43. But what do you expect? The school district includes Wasilla, Sarah Palin's hometown. Trump got 71% of the vote there. With low turnout, this was no revolt. Same as Maine. So in Maine, there's widespread anger over the private utility companies that people get their, their electricity from. The bills are high. They're slow to restore power. So something of a revolution was proposed. Let's take it over with a publicly owned utility. Power to the people. Nope. 
power to the people will still flow through the privately owned and admittedly inefficient and expensive utilities already in place. This was by a margin of 75 to 25% voters thought radical change too risky. My favorite result wasn't even an official rules change. The city of Rockville, Maryland had a non-binding referendum, actually referenda, I'll tell you about both of them. One asked voters, hey, what do you think of allowing 16 and 17 year olds to vote? And another said, how about uh, letting non-US citizens vote? So guys, think in your head. Trump lost it by, he got about a third of the vote, so it's Democratic area, Montgomery County. So what do they think about children being the future and allowing 16 and 17 year olds to vote? Nope. No, one out, 68% to 28%. They do not want the youth to vote. In fact, they want non-citizens to vote by a slightly higher margin, though still an overwhelmingly nope answer on that. 33% of Rockville, Maryland citizens said, yeah, let non-citizens vote. So this is my thesis. Non-revolutionary change is in the air. If Democrats can convince the electorate that they represent competence, their own self-interest, and something less than a complete break from the reality and politics that they've always known, Democrats will do well in elections in the near future. On the show today, another election, and no, no more Ole Larson school board results. It's a different contest, the presidential contest, where Donald Trump actually seems to be making inroads with black voters. But first, on January 6th, 2021, rioters stormed the U.S. Capitol. American democracy took a blow. What gets lost in the narrative of that day are that real people took blows, not just the concept of democracy. They were members of the Capitol Police Force, and they were pounded by the fists of countless rioters as they tried to defend the U.S. Capitol. One of those officers, Ecolino Gonell, is out with a new book, American Shield, the immigrant sergeant who defended democracy. He joins us to talk about the experience and its aftermath. Ecolino Gonell, up next. Aquilino Gunnell was a Capitol Hill police officer on the day of the January 6th riots. I am going to read two passages, contrasting passages, from his new book called American Shield, The Immigrant Sergeant Who Defended Democracy. I kept my shield in front of me to fight off a swarm of attackers. An old white guy with a beard jabbed me from a pole from the side near my groin and thighs. I fended off another bearded nut, this one in a military helmet and blue jacket as he tried to wrestle my baton and portable radio cord away. As pepper spray came at my face, I donned my gas mask. My gloves were slippery from sprayed chemicals, so I took them off. Trained officers hurled stun grenades and pepper ball ammos at the agitators from the top of the inaugural stage. A round hit a Trump supporter in his cheek, his blood gushing. Two of us went to assist him, causing another agitator to go berserk, thinking we were arresting him. Why are you attacking him for no reason, he yelled. For no reason. This was the most ruthless rampage I've ever witnessed. Many of these barbarians were armed. Okay, this is, keep that in mind, hold that in your mind, this most ruthless rampage he ever witnessed. Here's from earlier in Sergeant Cannell's book. 
As I went back to buy M&Ms and Skittles, a blast shook me to the ground, rattling everything in the store. Two more booms smashed the windows. Someone shouted that mortar rounds were being fired by Iraqi insurgents. The land sirens went off. Petrified, I hid behind concrete at the entrance, yelling, take cover. I was choking from smoke that was everywhere. The three soldiers that a sergeant let skip the line were dead. The one he'd spoken to was on the ground, decapitated, his head in different pieces, a foot away from his body, blood everywhere. The other two were missing their arms and legs. So to put that in perspective, and thank you for indulging me the long readings, Sergeant Cannell was there on January 6th. He served in Iraq, and he was there to tell you that January 6th was much worse. He was there eventually to tell the U.S. Congress, anyone who would listen, but it was a surprising small number of people. Uh, Equilino Gunnell, welcome to The Gist. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Let's start a little bit about your biography. You're born in the Dominican Republic, come to Brooklyn, and the major theme that you emphasize in your book is, because it was a large family and there were consequences for speaking out of turn, you always knew to stay quiet. Was that an adaptive mechanism to get through life? Yes, it was. Uh, it, uh, you know, it kept me away from trouble a lot. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, when I arrived to the, to the U.S., to New York, uh, it, was in, it was a rough neighborhood. It was a rough uh, times uh, in, in Brooklyn, uh, especially with gun, gun uh, violence, uh, crimes, uh, as if you know, uh, former Major Giuliani, he pretty much cleaned up the, the city uh, uh, at that time from, from a lot of things that were happening. And, you know, if you look at what what he had become uh, from that point in time to now, it's completely nine day. However, um, me keeping myself uh, away from, from trouble, keeping quiet whenever... Uh, it was not about me or related to my family that that serves like a purpose for me to to keep focus and stay uh, on my lane pretty much. Yeah. And you say you saw a lot of violence. There's an anecdote in the book about your a scene in the book. Your dad is shot. He's a cab driver shot outside your apartment. No, he got stabbed twice. Stabbed uh, twice. It's like one time that they we tried to chase the, the bad guys and then they came back and shot at us. Right. The emphasis in the book was about how rough things were and what you had to overcome, but also the fact that when the police intervened, unlike in the Dominican Republic, where you couldn't trust or respect the police, they were a source of safety and respect for you. That impressed you early on. That's correct. Uh, I mean, uh, my interaction with the police back back home in the Dominican Republic, you always spent, uh, unless you have connections unless you have money then most of the time whenever there's a crime uh i don't know now but it used to be that if you don't have if you don't have those connections or the uh, influence they don't do anything um they just shoot you away and uh, i'm sorry we can't do anything for you right uh unless you you pay up <laughs> so you do well enough in high school you go to uh liu brooklyn you go uh, join the military, join the army. This pays for uh, you complete college. It wasn't always easy. And you were attracted early on to a career in law enforcement and specifically about working on Capitol Hill. How was that seed planted? Uh, it was a high school trip that, you know, I, 
me trying to get away in a way uh, out of uh, my school assignments uh, that kind of like gave me the planted the sea uh, w- once I step on the Capitol and seeing the the this majestic dome uh, and, and and how well the police officers were and courteous they were t- towards the people not like back home so it was totally different uh, interactions. So you, uh, you write in the book that well, when you got the right to vote, you voted against George W. Bush. You were inspired to serve after 9-11. You definitely, I mean, the impression I got was different people defined patriotism in different ways, but I would say you certainly were a patriot. You were a person who, you know, definitely believed in doing things the right way in the military. You were mostly rewarded for it. You liked, took seriously your responsibilities of being an officer. When the Black Lives Matter protests came, you would, on the one hand, you were offended by some of those protesters hurling uninformed insults at you. But on the other hand, you engaged with them and also didn't, you you understood where some of them were coming from. Am I getting that about right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the, these, you know, just because I'm a police officer doesn't mean that I never faced those things that they were try- fighting for or right. trying to bring up to light to everybody to pay attention. I mean, I'm a, I'm a colored per- person. I'm considered, even though I had done the great things for this country, I still get those those looks. I still get uh, a label as uh, you know immigrant or not a, an American. You know, I, and this is coming from a lot of people who had not done anything of those things that I had done. So let's go to the morning of January 6th. Was this, you know, obviously there was a big demonstration taking place. There are often big demonstrations taking place. Was it more, were you, was, were the police on a higher level of alert or more prepared than, than they had been at other times um, in your tenure? Uh, no, uh, all those things were were the same. We did nothing different that day, other than uh, begin an earlier day. Yeah, so, and then after, I'm going to jump ahead, but we'll circle back. Four hours of fighting, trying to revive a protester who the medical examiner said died from an OD. You suffered a torn labrum in your shoulder. You get your hand smashed in, your foot smashed in. Taking an elevator down to the detail office, I marched up to my captain's desk and tore into him. Why didn't we have more reinforcements? We could have all died out there. The whole capital was breached, he responded. We were surprised and completely overwhelmed on all sides. Notice that doesn't the answer the question. Why didn't we have more reinforcements? Why weren't more available? You talk about the percentage of the, what is it, 1,800 or so Capitol Police officers. There were only... At that time, yes. Yeah, it's only about 400 were even trained in anything like riot patrol. So in your fact-finding or journey to find out an answer to that question, what have you found? Why weren't there, why wasn't there better preparation? Um, if, if you look at the people who were in the authority to make those decisions, you're talking about like, you know, I knew the constraints that we had as a agency, we had, uh, COVID, you know, ravaging the, the whole country, whatnot. So we had officers on leave. We had officers on COVID leave, uh, we also have other officers who were not trained for CDU. What CDU? Uh, uh, Civil Disturbance Unit. 
uh, and that's what I was one of the 400 officers, like you said, yeah. um, that were, were trained. Um, I don't know. I, I think because we planned that event with the same procedures that we had done in the past, um, we didn't have the resources in terms of in place for reinforcement. Yeah. You talk about in the book, the many members of the police force who, as you write, nobody investigated how many Caucasian officers helped the rioters or were simply passive and did nothing to keep them out. Most of our unions endorsed Trump's election. A high number of officers donated money to his campaign. A colleague estimated that 25% of our force, meaning Capitol Hill police, had assisted the mob. What do you think of that estimate? A lot of people were supportive of what the Trump campaign was, but I ultimately I think everybody was doing their job. I cannot speak about what other people, what their options were, because I, I wasn't there. I, all I could tell you is if on the West Front, where I was, it was rough for me. It was life and death for a lot of people. And we decided to make our stand, uh, especially inside the tunnel, where uh, we spent almost three hours fighting and pushing back. And at that time, uh, that we thought that that was the only breach in the Capitol, that, that there was no way around uh, for them to get in. Uh, obviously, I was wrong, uh, but you know we made our stand and, and we were willing to risk our life and bodies to protect those who were inside. Relatedly, uh, as the floor was slippery with blood, vomit, and pepper spray, and you were fighting back the crowd and fearing that you get dragged away, you write, I thought of grabbing my gun to use deadly force, knowing it would be justified, but you decided not to. And I've heard independently, many, many officers, knowing that they were armed, thinking to themselves, I could fire off some shots, but that is going to make it worse. Then when my clip is emptied, I'll be overwhelmed. And my question is, it's interesting to me that so many people came independently to this judgment that I think the only shots were fired were at Ashley Babbitt after she, you know, breached areas that were very sensitive and in the inner sanctum. So what does that tell you that the training, even though you didn't have proper enforcements, that the training or judgment of the Capitol Hill police, since it was replicated in so many different officers worked? Um during the fighting, especially in the tunnel, we all knew that we were uh, justified to use lethal force. The question came in my mind, am I going to make things worse not only for me, but for my fellow officers? And if I, I know I justify, I I know for sure, the fuck it, they try to drag me like they did Michael Fanon and beat me up and all stuff. So I knew I was justified. It was just a matter of, is, is it going to make a difference if I do that? Because all these people are berserk, though they're all fighting, they fill with rage, and, and they attack, and they're not listening to the commands we are we we are giving them. And the other thing is you have to think about is uh, how many rounds do I have in my club? You got sixteen in the first one, then fifteen in the next one. Are my colleagues also going to begin to fire back at the crowd? Because a lot of people were doing this, you know, they attack me, put their hands up, but then somebody else would come in and stack me, put their hand up. Now I cannot shoot them because they gave up. Yeah. But the minute somebody else, it's kind of like, it wasn't just one person attacking right. me. It right. was multiple uh, different angles. So 
I'm accountable for each bullet that comes out of that. And if it hits grandma down the mall yeah. or, or below the stage, that's on me. So I was surprised that after the riot, how little support you got officially. Because publicly, you were being praised. John Stewart was praising you. The media was very interested. Certainly, all the Democrats were talking about the heroism of people like you. But there you were, having to go to physical therapy, having to do mental therapy, not being able to work as much. So you're talking about, here I am, this great hero. My pay is cut to 75% of what it was beforehand. And also... It seems that there's no, no one was really interested in doing a proper after action report and getting your assessment of what happened. You know, when there is an investigation and the police are involved, normally the police are paid for their time to testify and they want the police's input. Uh, They solicit it, sometimes they compel it. But in this case, they didn't seem, I don't know who the they is in this uh, situation, but certainly powerful forces weren't, ve- didn't seem very interested in hearing your testimony. You had to raise your hand and thrust yourself into the spotlight because it wasn't coming for you. Well, to be honest with you, I uh, it, it continued to amaze me that uh, even more than two years and a half, almost three years now, uh, I... Capitol Police never say, you know what, what happened to you? Mm-hmm. Come sit down with me. Tell us what happened to you. Just, just so we know what happened. Uh, you know, and, and to me, that's that's astounding. Uh, like I said, I, I continue, even though now, uh, next month I'll be uh, in court for two people who who assaulted me. And I'm not a police officer anymore, uh, but yet I'm still so invested because more than uh, 40 to 50 people assaulted me that day and they continue to go through uh, uh, the court system. And some of those things, uh, people have not been identified yet. So I try to continue to re- remain engaged with some of these procedures because I noticed that whenever I don't show up to court for one of the writers who assaulted me, the judge seems to be more sympathetic because there was not a victim in front of him. Mm-hmm. Uh, they cry for leniency or want to, oh, I have a grandkid. Um, um, I retire. I want to enjoy my, I had the, uh, one of them had the audacity to say, well, I just want to go get over this and enjoy my retirement. Well, motherfucker, <laughs> you should have thought about that before you assault the police officer doing a riot. You talk about in the book that different members of the police force, sometimes higher ranking than you, would, you talked about politics as any workplace, any DC workplace essentially would, Mm -hmm. and they would defend Trump and they would say it's a joke and you would say, I don't think it's a joke, the joke's always on me. Was it before January 6th, did you think it was, did you think differently that these were officers saying this, officers who were sworn to protect the institutions of the United States who are pro-Trump? Did you think differently and worse of them than you might have if you were just, say, factory workers, where one guy has one opinion and one guy has another opinion? Not really. Yeah, no, that's fine. I, I understand that. You know, like like the whole country is, was or is still polarized, you know, mm-hmm. on on political issues. Because you, you could have your own, your own political ideology, you could have your own beliefs, but if you start acting on some of those things in a way that is compromise your position or not in a neutral way, then that's a problem. I think 
a lot of the officers themselves, they, they did a great job. They continue to do the job no matter who's in power. Um, and I didn't, I don't think that, uh, they reflected any bias or any favoritism on January 6th relating to what we were facing, what we needed to do. But there are other things that, uh, made me worry. Are you guys listening to yourselves? Are you okay with what this person says? I'm your colleagues. I'm a colored person. Uh, you know, uh, and, and I try to engage in a positive way, not like, uh, debating or uh cursing anything like that so i did speak to that supervisor that i had i had a conversation uh leading to january 6 and when january 6 happened that same night i just looked looked at, at, at the supervisor i'm like silently i didn't have to say anything yeah i just looked at him yeah and he didn't say anything about it until probably a week or so when I actually had a, a, a chance to, to talk to him, like, you see why what you, the president says matters? Because although there are so many people listening to what he says or don't say or insinuate, and people are going to act on that. And what did he say? He was like, oh, I'm not, I'm not a Trumper, and I, 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 I just like his policies, but I'm like, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> Aquilino Gonell is an Iraq war veteran, a former U.S. Capitol Police officer. He is a recipient of the Congressional Gold Medal and Presidential Citizens Medal. We believe he is the only Dominican to have won both those awards. <laughs> His new book is American Shield, The Immigrant Sergeant Who Defended Democracy. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm very honored. And now, the spiel. Last night's elections were pretty clear. Americans like legal abortion. They like election non-deniers. And also, somehow, it seems like they still kind of like a guy who strongly disagrees with them on the second point and isn't quite on board with the first. His name is Donald Trump. One sign of Trump's persistent, impossible-to-kill-off appeal is his standing with black voters. Can you believe this? A month ago, Trump's surrogates, and then Trump himself, began making the case that he was doing really well with black voters, at least compared to the baseline. Here he was on the Hugh Hewitt radio show in early September. Since that mugshot was taken, I don't know if you've seen the polls, my polls with the black community have gone up four and five times. Hispanic has been so good to me. Uh, the Hispanic community has been unbelievable. But since that mugshot, which should have never been taken, but since that mugshot was taken, of, of a very popular president of the United States. Immediately, the Trump fact check industry sprang into action. There were no polls reflecting four times the support, as reported Daniel Dale on CNN. And we have to emphasize, of course, even if there has been a genuine increase with black voters in the last couple of weeks, that could be for any number of hundreds of reasons. It could be gas prices. It could be something about the war in Ukraine. It can be anything. There is no sign whatsoever that black voters are reacting enthusiastically to the existence of a Donald Trump mugshot. 
Under the headline, Indicted Trump Claims Solidarity with Black Voters, Axios quoted former South Carolina state rep and current CNN analyst Bakari Sellers on the issue of Trump's appeal, especially to black men, quote, the best way to describe Trump's political efforts here is pissing in windmills. And on MSNBC, host Jonathan Capehart was driven to hysterics by the claims made by sycophantic Trump media. On his show, he played a series of clips and will join with the last one, which was of Fox's Jesse Waters. Black Americans throughout our history have felt unfairly victimized by the system. Historically, there's some truth to that. The mugshot unintentionally created a bond between Donald Trump and black Americans over the weekend. With the help of mugshot merchandise, the Trump campaign raked in over $7 million. Today, my garbage man told me he's buying mugshot t-shirts for everyone he knows this Christmas. Capehart and his aunt are in agreement on this issue. Seriously, his garbage man? Oh my... Joining me now to discuss that nonsense, America's Aunt, Aunt Gloria, my Aunt Gloria, Evan Kindred. Uh, Aunt Gloria, oh, Jesus, fix it. Um, you're black. That is ridiculous. You're black. Is having a mugshot what you need to win over black voters? No. And I don't think black voters are going to vote for him. It's ridiculous. Who's not in agreement? 22% of the black community. Soon after Trump's brag about support in the black community, the Washington Post reported, quote, across five high quality polls that have broken out non-white voters in the past month, Trump is averaging 20% of black voters. This from the New York Times two days ago. New polls by the New York Times and Siena College found that 22% of black voters in six of the most important battleground states said they would support former President Donald Trump. The pretty well-respected Quinnipiac poll found that 25% of black voters support Trump. And yes, it could well be, almost certainly is, for reasons other than a mugshot. And Trump did not quadruple his 8% showing among black voters in the 2020 election, that number according to the Pew Validated Voter Survey. No, he didn't quadruple it. He only seems to have nearly tripled it. But my God, he nearly tripled it with black voters. A mugshot in Georgia where he harassed two black poll workers and tried to overturn election results where he won 88% of the black vote, thus attempting to disenfranchise the vast, vast majority of black voters. That is why the mugshot exists. Now, I can give you all the reasons why Trump's support in the black community could very well may come down. I can't, by the way, actually do that as easily with the bigger Hispanic community, which supports Trump more. I could tell you that Trump's explanation of his appeal is far-fetched, as is his overstatement of the phenomenon. But that's Trump manifesting everything from election success to indictments. I will vow, though, to do this, I will not book an esteemed pundit like, say, my aunt to laugh at how impossible this all is. Please, let's remember, Trump is a pretty shocking guy, and yet it continues to shock us in the specific ways that he's shocking. And maybe it shouldn't. I discredit the explanatory powers of the mugshot, but I don't think of Trump's candidacy as anything close to a long shot. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara and his aunt produced the gist. Joel Patterson has gotten his aunt on board to laugh and laugh at some of our lighter segments as senior producer of The Gist. Michelle Pesca is CLFAO. 
of Peachfish Productions. Her aunt Donna also laughs her ass off at Pesca Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu, jeeperu, dooperu, and thanks for listening. <laughs>